0: In heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we get right now to hear from you. As this says, we are so tempted to hear from so many other things, other places. We've been hearing other m- m- messages throughout our week of where we can find life and hope and security and meaning and purpose. And we pray that this morning you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive and respond to the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Esther is a, a pretty complicated book. It's a little bit disorienting, a little bit difficult to know what to do with and how to respond to, and I don't know that as a network of churches, Redemption Church, that we uh, knew that going in, that our first series through as a new network would be to pick a book that's somewhat complicated. I think, at least I thought, that it would be fairly easy. That it'd be like, oh, Esther, I know that story. I've seen the v- v- Veggie Tales. I saw the Hollywood saw the Hollywood movie and Veggie Hedge is just a good, how to shout, and uh, saw the Hollywood movie, A Night with the King, and this is easy. I know what to do of, with this book. But as I've pressed in, I've been a bit shaken that that some of my expectations were not were not all all um, accurate. We're not all there. It's a much more complex book now. If we approach Esther and we're looking for kind of coffee mug bumper sticker t-shirt, kind of quick and easy things to apply to our lives than it is easy. You could definitely get that out of it, but as we've pressed in so far, right, we're in chapter four this week, we've seen that there's this king who's opulent and seemingly all powerful, but as we press in a bit more, we see that he's he's a bit insecure, he's a bit unpredictable, he, uh, he's, not, he's not what you would first expect. If you've ever seen, I don't know if you all talked about this, but if you ever saw the movie 300, uh, that's the same king, uh, um, Ahasuerus. Here he's referred to, but is known throughout the world as King Xerxes of Persia, this great, powerful king who like, conquered from India to Ethiopia, this huge chunk of the known world at that time. And then we meet these characters these, these Jewish people, Mordecai and then Esther, and we don't quite know what to make of them. Again, at first glance, it's like, oh, I know how this story goes, but as we press in more deeply, it's more complicated. It's a little more challenging. In fact, even this morning, as we look at Esther chapter four, some of you probably have the English standard ver- ver- version. I believe John um, talked about why you, you all are going through um, with the new international version, the NIV. But the ESV, if any of you have that, you, you notice that the, first, that the heading says, Esther agrees to help the Jews. But uh, if you have the new international version, the NIV, it says, Mordecai persuades Esther to help. There's a bit of tension there. Like, that's not saying the exact same thing. Now, to be clear, the Bible is perfect and without error. The Bible is God's word given to us for reproof, for correction, for rebuke, for shaping all of our lives. But, or, and that's it. That's final, true, we believe that. That said, the headings and even chapters and verses are given more to help us find our place in God's word. Those are not necessarily inspired. So if you're at all kind of shaken by why does the NIV say one thing and the ESV say another, there's, that doesn't say anything about God's sovereignty, his wisdom, his authority, his truth, that his word is without error. But it actually could be somewhat of a clue for us to press in and be like, oh, Maybe there's some complexity here. Maybe there's some tension. And I would submit to us, and I, I believe that Esther is more of an invitation for us to reflect on the complexities of life, of real life. That our first flinch is to want, again, easy, easily digestible, easily applied uh, answers that we can bring about um, we can bring about changes and solutions to a complex world that, that we just need a couple of sentences to help us know how to connect all the dots, and then the world will be as it should be, and we can just kind of move on and go from there. And, and again, I would submit to us that that's because we're too quick to make it all about us, and we're too quick to approach the Bible and expect just very simple, easy answers that we don't really need much help from God for. We just need a little boost to get us over the hump. So, this morning, will you join me again in this invitation, I think, from this author of Esther to reflect on the complexities of life? As was said at the beginning, my name's Dave, I'm the lead pastor at Redemption. Tucson, and uh, I got to meet someone this morning who has been a part of a different couple different uh, redemption congregations, was at Redemption Tempe, where we were actually sent out from to plant in Redemption Tucson. So it's just great to be here with you all. Uh, my in-laws actually or go here, they're members here at Redemption Peoria, I've been up here to preach with you a few times. If you've uh, never heard me preach before, um, I want to let you know that I have a stutter, uh, you've heard that perhaps the first couple minutes I've been talking and wondered where that's coming from. So that's it. It's not my uh, ill-advised attempt at hip-hop or anything like that. It's, uh, it's just a speech impediment. It'll come in and out as I go, and I uh, want to give you a heads up on that. But again, as we approach Esther, will you join me in in hopefully having a posture of uh, a, a courageous willingness to move into some com- complexity, to reflect on some maybe challenging questions together. And and I think chapter four has a lot of them. So will you join me as we pick up together in chapter four, uh, verse one, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Nordecai. She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. What's going on here? Again, a, a few things. are we might, we might assume some things. We might jump to some conclusions right out of the gates. Be like, oh, I know what's happening here, but what is the author giving us and what is the author not giving us? I think a first question that we ask is, who do I follow in this moment? Who's right? Who's the hero? Who's the v- villain? Who's getting it right? Who's getting it wrong? It seems like M- M- Mordecai is, is understandably upset. So just in the last chapter we heard there, that this like edict went out that all the Jews in in the entire kingdom, the entire empire of Persia should be killed. So understandably, Mordecai and many others are, are upset about that, and they're wearing sackcloth and ashes, and they're fasting. And maybe you're assuming that they're praying, and they might be, but they might not be. This doesn't say they're praying. In fact, anywhere in here, it doesn't say that they're praying. So I think, again, that's a, that's a complexity that we're invited to reflect on. Because actually, sackcloth and ashes was done all throughout the uh, Near Eastern world at that time. People would wear sackcloth and ashes and would lament and wail and yell. And it wasn't necessarily always a spiritual thing. And it certain, certainly wasn't always something uh, done by God's people. So it could be, it would be like in our day, like if you said, oh, they're, they're crying because they're sad about something, they must be followers of Jesus. That would be a, an assumption that you leapt to. Like, yes, grieving is a good thing, and Mordecai's grieving, but is he going before God with his grief. We we don't know. And so then also, how about Esther? Esther seems upset by what Mordecai is doing. All right, she sends him clothes to wear and she wants him to stop. Is it because she, like many of us, is uncomfortable with lament, is uncomfortable with grief and sadness? And many of us just want to move on. As we just saw earlier, lament is a good thing. In fact, um, I have a couple of definitions for us to reflect on because I think in our day, we're kind of a lament, or again, we're a grief-averse culture, a grief-averse people. And from the gospel coalition, they say lament is the honest expression of our sorrows before God. Or someone else among our redemption network said that lament is agreeing with God that the world is not the way it should be. So again, grief and lament are good things. In our culture, I admit myself, it's uncomfortable when people are crying, right? And someone uh, once pointed out to me, often when we give someone a tissue box, Yes, it can be because we're being helpful and they have snot running down their face and we want to kind of help them. But more often than not, it's also probably because we're so uncomfortable with their grief. We want them to do something about it. And it could be both, right? But again, it's complex. So there's this complexity here going on. And I think our first question is, well, who's the hero? Is Esther? Is Mordecai? Is what Mordecai is doing appropriate and right? Is he praying? Is he not praying? Who do we follow? Right? Is that not just a question throughout Esther? If you've been here throughout this series, and so often when we read the Bible, that's a question. Like, who do I follow? Who should I be more like? I think as we read through this, that's just a question we're left with. Who do we follow? And then, in verses uh, 5 through 10, this, this dynamic goes back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai sends his people to Esther and says, tell Esther this. I don't know if she has all the right information. Has she seen all the blogs? Has she read all the, has she seen all the YouTube videos that I've seen? Does she know about the secret web, dark web source that I know about? And like, let me make sure she knows all the right information uh, about these things. Sorry, was that a little uncomfortable mentioning that? See, right, there's this back and forth. Um, Maybe more appropriately, it felt to me as I read this back and forth in these kind of six or so verses between Esther and Mordecai, it feels like a almost like a junior high re- relationship or high school relationship, or maybe even marriage, where it's like, who has the upper hand? Like, someone has to have the upper hand, someone needs to be right, the other person needs to be wrong, someone needs to be more in love and is trying to woo the other person to love them back, and then at some point, it seems like the tables flip. Is it anyone else or is that just me? But, right, it feels like this back and forth between who's winning. And that's what this dynamic is like between Esther and Mordecai. Until finally Esther responds to Mordecai's kind of, his, his answers, his, his, his rebukes. R- and she says in verse 11... All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has put one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king." So as we press in and we look at the whole story here, there's this irony that's been going on. It's that in the very beginning, the king excused his wife—that's a way to put it nicely—his queen, Queen v- 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 Vashti. He removed her from being queen because he summoned her and she would not come. Well, now we hear from Esther. She's saying, "Ah." Uh, you want me to go and talk with the king, but if I go and talk with him, unless I'm summoned, I could be killed. So what we have here is a really unpredictable king, a seemingly all powerful king. And again, Mordecai might even be kind of making it very palatable. Like, but it's it's actually way more complex than that. Again, we could just see like, oh yeah, just go and talk with the king. You're the queen. That's what happens Just talk to him over dinner. But she says, I haven't even seen him in 30 days. We don't know why. There's lots of potential for why. We know he's a man who's um, not above abusing his power and his privileges as king. And so he's very likely, doing that. But either way, Esther's like, I haven't even seen him. But, but, but what we see here is this king, and we can ask these questions, is that what people in authority are like? If we can try to put ourselves in these shoes of the first audience here who would have gotten this, they would be, again, Jewish people who would know the Hebrew scriptures, who would have in mind this idea of you need to get it just right, when you go talk to Pharaoh, even when you go and talk to um, other kings, even kings of Israel, Saul or David or Solomon, like you don't just mosey on up and have a casual conversation. And when you go, even, um, even just before this king Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or now xerxes like is this what kings are like when you approach authorities do you go with this kind of like fingers crossed you don't know what you're gonna get are they having a good day or a bad day and let's just be honest in our day this is true as well politicians police officers parents pastors People in authority are often very fickle, and you don't know, are, they ha- are we having a good day or a bad day, and what are you going to get in response? That's I'm a pastor, I'm a parent, my dad was a police officer, I know politicians, right? And no matter how well intended we are, there can be this uncertainty, and that's something we're invited to reflect on, this complexity in verse 11, and then the tension builds in Picking up in verse 12, M- 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 Mordecai offers up one of the most memorable parts of this whole book. And then when Esther's words were reported to M- Mordecai, right, in a sense, she's like, I don't know what we're going to get. If I go and talk with this king, Xerxes, I, don't, I could be killed. So when that is re- reported back to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. Again, is he being manipulative? Is he threatening Esther? Is he giving her the old, like, attaboy, you know, you got this talk? Like, just dig down, right? I know it's the fourth quarter and you're tired, but you got it. You know, down in Tucson, we like to say a little phrase, bear down, right? <laughs> Some of you don't hiss at me if you don't, right? But like, you know, you got this. I'm all about the like, remember the Titans, Rudy, the Sandlot, you name it. I'm a short dude with a speech impediment. You got to believe I love a good underdog story, <laughs> right? So what, is that what he's doing here? Is he like, you got this, dig down, you can go. Or is he like manipulating her? I don't know. As we continue on in verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Is Mordecai full of faith? God will come through. It might be through you or it might be through someone else. Or is he not? Does he have kind of just kind of empty, naive optimism? We don't know. I don't think the author gives us this so clearly. Again, I think we want to quickly lean to like, yeah, that's a great faith. Or, you know, we're all born for such a time as this. We as the Redemption Network, right, love this phrase that life is naturally supernatural. Supernatural. That who knows for such a time as this, all that you and I have experienced in our lives for, we never know when God will use even the most broken and painful parts of our story for his glory and others good and the advancement of his kingdom. There's beauty and good that we live with the posture of for such a time as this. Is that what Mordecai is saying here though? Or is he just manipulating his niece, Esther? Is Esther being resistant or not? We don't know. He says deliverance will come, but then he says, who knows? I think again, that's an invitation for us to reflect. Where is deliverance going to come from? And then in the last verses here, in verse 15, we see Esther's response. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai: Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Again, she doesn't say pray. Is it implied? Is it not? I don't know. Gather everyone to fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast, (coughs) excuse me, as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Okay, first here we see, right, this back and forth. Esther has done whatever Mordecai told her to do. And now for some reason, at some point in the story, it's kind of flipped. And now Esther has courage. I don't want to downplay that at all. Esther has courage and she says, I'll go. If I perish, I perish. There's a 50-50 chance I could die. Like, let's not move beyond that too much. Can you imagine making a decision, any decision? Again, people in the military, police officers, People who courageously, you know, move into places of potential harm have that all the time. There's, I I could live, I could die. Either way here, Mordecai now responds and he does what Esther tells him to do. And again, everything in us, I think, wants to go with, oh, there it is. Esther finally worked up the courage and so the takeaway is go be more like Esther, Esther is more courageous. She's got backbone. She's got fortitude. She's taking the initiative. And I don't want to downplay that at all. We've seen that story throughout all of Scripture up until this point, that God's people consistently move into places like this. And there's something I don't want to downplay or disparage them at all, right? Looking all the way back to, again, um, Noah, Abraham. Jacob, Joseph, if you're not familiar, you didn't grow up in church like I didn't. You might not know some of those names. All of them at different times were faced with kind of a challenging decision. And there was, again, like a 50-50 chance, it seemed, to move forward. Others, maybe you've heard of King David. That's my own name. Most people with this stutter know your own name is the hardest. So, But, uh King David, right, like he went and fought the giant, right, Goliath. Again, if maybe you saw the veggie tales of this. And uh, he goes and goes to fight the giant, and it's like if he lives or dies, who knows? But he's like, it's in God's hands. Or Daniel. And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they, um, when, the, when the three friends get into this fiery furnace, they go into that and they say basically like, we may live or we may die, but either way, we're gonna, put God, we're gonna trust our God. Is that the plight of God's people? Is that just what to expect? Is that what we now as followers of Jesus in 2024 should take away have courage, do the right thing. You never know when your moment's going to come, which sounds a lot like an Eminem song. If you've, you know, it's like you've only got one shot, so be prepared for it. Thank you. Some of us, okay, we can laugh about that in church, but right? And we, if we're not on it, we kind of insert that. That's, we have an Eminem theology, but we just kind of church it up a little bit. And then we use Esther or Mordecai to be our mascots, our examples. These are some complex questions that we faced here together. All right, let's pray and then we'll go. No, (laughs) right? But I think many of us, myself included, are really uncomfortable with these kind of complexities. And yet I've heard it said that Esther is offered up to us in such a way that's more on something to reflect on than to r- resolve. Did I think the way Esther was offered to us was r- written? It's like we're, we're brought to places to consider and to reflect. We're brought to these complex questions. And we need to be careful to be so quick to just jump right to a coffee mug or a bumper sticker statement that will just make us feel comfortable walking away. These questions are meant to lead us to reflect. So with that in mind, let me just walk through. I'm not going to read through all the passages, but what were some of the questions that we were faced with? I'll have them up here as I walk through them. The first question in that first few verses, who do I follow? Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Is Esther Good and courageous and bold. Is she faithful or is she selfish and uncomfortable with lament and grief? And is she forgetting where she came from? It, I Like, is M- Mordecai a loving, encouraging uncle slash coach? Is he faithful and full of uh confidence that God will come through, or is he in a chess game? Is he kind of puffing up his chest against Haman, and they're going back and forth, and who's going to win, Haman or Mordecai? Is Mordecai more concerned about the plight of all the Jewish people? Is he a good, faithful Jewish person, or is he upset that Mordecai seemingly has the upper hand? That's complex, but perhaps the author is inviting us to reflect on the reality that it's really not about us. That, that human heroes are not the answer to the problems that we face. That, 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 that enough fortitude and enough trying hard to be faithful and right and to do the right thing is our answer. And then as we move on, is this what rulers are like? Is this what kings and anyone, any authority that we face is like, that we need to, like Xerxes, that sometimes we will be called and we won't want to go and we could be put to death. Or sometimes we will go and it will be the wrong time and we will be shunned. And again, we assume, oh, no, no, not God. Not God. But as we pause and we press in, how do we reflect on others? How do we ourselves operate out of positions of authority? And then do we assign that to our view of God? I think as Christians, many of us fall into one of two pitfalls. One, we have the kind of flippant view of God, the, you know, hey God, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. Just kind of you know, this kind of flippant view of God and, oh, God doesn't, and God's kind of a grandfatherly Santa Clausy figure and I just go to him and, and whenever and there's kind of no sense of awe or reverence. Or on the flip side, the other pitfall we go before God and we use such formal language of thee and thou and we only pray to God in certain places and in certain settings and, and only after we feel a certain way about ourselves and that's how we pray. And yet in the middle of these two pitfalls, in and through the person and work of Jesus alone, we see a God who is both holy and has made himself always present, and approachable, and available. We see the same God that in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah, the prophet, sees this incredible worship scene, and his mouth is burned because he has unclean lips, and he says, woe is me. Like, I have had way too low of a view of you, God. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Some of us, I think, need to be reminded of the holiness of God. And then we also, though, see in Hebrews chapter 4, let me read this for us. In fact, I'll just read verse 16, if you will. I have the whole section there, but in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, because Jesus has gone before us without sin, we can now say, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Unlike Xerxes, unlike any other fallen, broken idea of authority that we have in our minds, we have a God who is both holy and kind, who is all-powerful and just and who is good and forgiving. And because of the person and work of Jesus and because he has said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, because of that good news, we can run with confidence before him we can come to him though we are sinful though we have unclean lips though we have sinned and turned against him in rebellion in our thoughts in our words and in our actions we can come to him and call him father and friend and then we join in this question the third question where will deliverance come from Mordecai says, it will come from somewhere. Who knows? Who knows? Again, let us sit in that for a moment and not be too quick to just go straight to, oh, I know the answer. But do we not functionally in our lives live as though we so often don't know? Our help, our security, our confidence is going to come in my education, in my Bank account and my wisdom, my strength, my power, my influence, my winsomeness, my parents, my family name, whatever it might be, where is deliverance gonna come from? Again, the 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 first audience of this would be asking that question because they have been under other people's rule time and time and time again. This Book is offered up, it's written, and it would have been right in the time of about 500 or so years after the kingdom of Israel divided and fell apart, and then God's people were enslaved for the majority of that time. And then this would be about four or so, four and a half hundred years before the time of Jesus. And right, we know that Rome and Greece and all these other powers are on the horizon and God's people would be asking, where's deliverance going to come from? Is it going to be like the zealots who say with the sword, like we're going we're gonna to find freedom and deliverance because we're going we're gonna, to, um, because God is on our side and we're going to fight our way out of this. Many of us have that same posture today, even in the church, or we're like the Pharisees who say, by exact religious observance of the law, we're going to put God in our debt. And once we, once we perfectly obey all of the laws, then we will be delivered. Again, church, do not many of us Christians have this same posture of that's where deliverance is going to come from? Or we're like the Essenes who would also come up on, and would, and would think, oh, if we just pull away from secular society enough, if we just hunker down, we'll be, uh, we'll be faithful, and then we will be delivered. And yet, we're given this answer. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my, kelp, my help come from? Again, there's that question, who knows? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Where will deliverance come from and what will deliverance look like? This fourth question, is this what hope looks like? A 50-50 chance? Let's flip the coin. All those people I mentioned, right? Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, King David, Esther, Elijah, all these people like... They go like, maybe they'll live, maybe they'll die. Esther has courage because she goes in knowing that she could die. But God's deliverance will come when his son, fully God and fully man, lives a perfect life and then faces a cross, not with a 50% chance that he will live or die, but with a 100% chance that he will suffer. He will offer himself up. He will not need to be manipulated or coerced. He will acknowledge there's no other way for God's people to be delivered, to be set free from tyranny and hopelessness and suffering. He will say, if there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will, And then he will courageously hang on the cross and he will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because through his being forsaken, deliverance will come. He will say, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full. The the schism between God and man will be met. Justice will be fully offered up. He will say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. After having said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So as I close, the author of this book, Esther, has invited us to reflect on some really complex questions. And I believe the author the author of all of scripture, the author of all of life, has invited us to respond as we reflect to the true hero who is both approachable and holy, powerful and good, who delivers his people once and for all by courageously and victoriously offering himself up and promising to return. usher in his kingdom once and for all. So let me pray as we respond to this good and powerful and in Esther hidden God together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for hard questions. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, even you will allow us to sit in some of the harder questions, to offer up the harder questions. I don't know where everyone in this room is right now, but I know there are challenges, there are questions, there are concerns, there's lament, there's frustration. And I pray that we won't be too quick to just brush them aside or to offer an unhelpful answer, but Lord, to bring the harder questions before you and then to find the answer and who you are, and what you have done, and what you have promised still to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.